It's not a model of him sitting down and saying, oh, I've been reading about what the Iroquois have been up to, and I think we ought to imitate them. Welcome to the Common Errors in English Usage podcast. I'm here with Paul Bryant, author of the Common Errors in English Usage website and book, I'm the editor of that book and host of this weekly podcast, Tom Sumner. Hello, Paul. Hi, Tom. Paul, we were talking all about government and politics and forms of government, and we got up, we were talking about democracy in our last episode. We left off talking about the core concept of democracy, I guess. I I would say that's voting. Would you? Yeah, sure. A couple of terms related to it, enfranchisement and suffrage, terms we don't hear all that often, but interesting. Let's talk about suffrage. Yeah, suffrage. It sounds painful. (laughs) Yeah. comes from a less common meaning of the word suffer, to allow, permit, tolerate. So in the King James Version of the Bible, when Jesus says, suffer the little children to come unto me, he's saying, allow them to come unto me. Uh And sometimes you'll see that quoted in isolation as, suffer the little children as if, oh, these little children are going to suffer. Yeah. That yeah. actually it has means let them approach. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. In politics, uh, the people who are allowed to vote get suffrage. And for a long time, that was pretty limited. Women, for instance, for a very long time were not able to vote in most democracies. New Zealand it turns out to be the first to have given women to vote in 1893. Uh, the U.S. in 1920. Uh, Switzerland was one of the last to give women the right to vote in 1971, um, and they were notorious for holding out for a long time. This seems very late in the game. Yes. Various Middle Eastern countries are often listed as more recent, but most are not really true democracies. Uh, Iraq would be the closest case where they do have elections and votes and so on, and women are allowed to vote and do serve in parliament and so on. But in Saudi Arabia and places like that, although women vote, they don't really have an independent voice and are often not allowed to run for office. In the U.S., of course, there were restrictions early on. Uh, Women were not allowed to vote, people under 21, and notably slaves. And that was a huge dispute, of course, between the North and the South, although there were slaves in the North. The economy depended much more on slavery in the South. And the slaveholding states managed to negotiate a deal whereby slaves were counted, according to a compromise that was reached, as three-fifths of a person for the purpose of allocating the number of representatives there should be in the House of Representatives uh, from a particular state. But, of course, those slaves were not able to vote at all. So Mm -hmm. what they did was give more power to slaveholders than they otherwise would have had, especially if the slaves themselves had been able to vote. They presumably would have voted the slaveholders out of existence by abolishing slavery. So it was a particularly onerous exclusion in that case, where this lack of suffrage led to extreme suffering. And then other people who can't vote include certain convicts, as most states um, won't allow convicted felons to vote. And that is something that's being very much disputed. 
Many people argue that if you've served your time, there's no reason that you shouldn't be allowed to vote. And uh, others argue just because you've committed a crime of some kind doesn't necessarily mean you're not a good person to decide who should represent you or whether a local initiative should pass. But that is one group that's very much limited. There's a lot of argument about that right now. U.S. citizens who reside in our possessions, we don't like to think of ourselves as having an empire, and it's not exactly like the glorious English empire, the Roman empire, but we do have some possessions where people don't get to vote. Puerto Rico, Guam, Mariana Islands, and the U.S. Virgin Islands. And it's always entertaining at every political convention when they come to the Virgin Islands. The representative stands up and says, uh, the U.S. Virgin Islands, where America's day begins. Cast their votes for blah, blah, blah. And the votes they cast are just in nominating conventions. But when it comes to the election, they don't get to vote. And, of course, uh, notoriously, the residents of Washington, D.C. don't get to vote for representatives either. They do have a representative, but it's a non-voting representative in the House. So they don't have the entire franchise. And there's a lot of complaint about that, of course. So when, whenever um, more people are granted the right to vote, that's called extending the franchise. And there's the notion of disenfranchisement. That's a big topic. Right. In old French franchise or in French franchise, uh, denoted certain kinds of privileges granted to members of the feudal system, which we talked about earlier. The term was widely used in the late Middle Ages and Renaissance for certain kinds of legal immunity or exemption. You had a franchise of a certain kind to do something. Later, it became the right to perform a legal action. And in the U.S., uh, the right to form a licensed business or athletic team in a in a league. So we talk about the McDonald's franchise or the NFL franchise. It also gets used uh, metaphorically for uh, things in popular culture like the X-Men franchise, which would mm-hmm. be the comic books, the movies, the figurines, and so on. But by 1770, franchise had come to mean the right to vote. And in democracies, there are constant battles about expanding or restricting the franchise that is over suffrage which we just were talking about now in france the word franchise now means frankness so if you speak with frankness you speak your mind you say what you think then you're practicing franchise i suppose that our president would be a good example of franchise in that Mm. sense Mm -hmm. says what he thinks he keeps changing what he thinks, but <laughs> not shy about saying what he says at that moment. What he thinks, right? And disenfranchise is usually used metaphorically now, not literally. Uh, not often do people say we need to pass a law to exclude these people from voting. The example I can think of in the contemporary U.S. has to do with tribal uh, self-government among Native Americans. Many Native American tribes have decided that they're getting uh, enough benefits, not just from the government, but from businesses. They run notably casinos. And when they start making a lot of money, it has to be divided up among members of the tribe. And many tribes have begun to disenroll people saying, well, you can't prove that you're actually descended from your Native American ancestors. Uh, Sometimes it's that uh, there was a lot of intermarriage and you're not enough of a Native American or Indian, as they usually call themselves. And in some cases, it's been, uh, you don't have a birth certificate. 
and there's a lot of legal action going on. And it's it's not something that comes to a lot of public awareness. It's more in the news in the West, but even here, people who aren't directly involved in it don't know. But they, they are actually seeking to disenfranchise these people in that they don't get to vote then for tribal leadership and so on. Of course, there's still United States citizens get to vote on that level. But that's a excellent example or a horrible example of actual disenfranchisement. Mm-hmm. Um, well, and so. there's also a disenfranchisement and some of these shenanigans and the messing around with the voter rolls. Yes. Sometimes you disenfranchise people by saying you can't prove your ID well enough. Uh, we need to have your birth certificate and it's not enough for you to have a driver's license. Notoriously in Texas, if you had a gun license, that was enough to make you a voter. But your student ID card wouldn't. Yes. And students, by the way, are disenfranchised a lot. If you go to study in a, in a different state and live there, usually you're not counted as a resident and don't get to vote in their elections. And uh, some in places where you have to go to the polling place to vote, students who are voting in some places have to fill out an absentee ballot. And in many cases, that's made awkward and difficult. So they get effectively disenfranchised as well. And some people can show up to vote believing they're on the voter rolls and they have been identified as a felon because they share a name with somebody who was convicted of a crime. It may possibly even in another state or they'll be handed a provisional ballot. Right. Meaning we'll count up these votes if they're needed to move the election one way or the other, usually just tossed away. It's mainly conservatives who have been engaging in this kind of thing, trying to hang on to power. And what they're doing is making it more and more difficult to people legitimately to cast their votes by making it hard to prove that you have the legitimate right to vote. And they say they're doing this to prevent fraud. And the president has famously set up a committee to investigate this whole thing, which is made up of people who have a vested interest in it. But it's also used metaphorically a lot. So people are effectively disenfranchised Mm -hmm. if, for instance, voting hours are restricted so that if you have a full time job and aren't able to leave between the hours of eight and five, you don't get to vote. So effectively, you're disenfranchised. So this whole idea of the franchise having to do with voting and right to vote and so on, it also explains why we have the odd term frank and as used by politicians having a franking privilege. And originally it was the signature of a person such as a member of parliament who is entitled to send letters postage free. If you frank something, you can be putting your signature on it. And U.S. Congress members have franking privileges. So if they're making official mail that they're communicating with their constituents, they can send out uh, letters answering complaints or queries. And they can also send out newsletters about what they're doing in Congress and asking for advice and so on. And they don't have to pay for the postage for that. It's paid for out of public funds. That's called the franking privilege. However, If they are trying to raise funds and engage in politicking, which we talked about earlier, campaigning, then they can't do that. And it's a fine line because often these newsletters that say this is what I've been working on for you is really a way of suggesting, you know, you should really vote for me again next time because uh, this is something I think you're going to want to support. So franking privileges has nothing to do with your right to eat a hot dog. (laughs) No. Just to avoid that common confusion. All right. So 
we're talking about voting and that is the foundation of democracy and thinking about it a little bit people like to say well uh, uh, here in the u.s this is not a democracy it's a republic ah uh, yes what do they mean when they say that and and are we a republic or to what degree is that true well republic comes from a latin phrase res publicus the public thing literally and models of it are associated with ancient rome in the period before and during uh, julius caesar's reign uh, he's often referred to as an emperor by people who aren't historians but he's actually had held a number of offices but never was imperator but anyway and then in later people applied this term republic to uh, plato's term for his ideal government which was a secretive meritocratic dictatorship which masqueraded as a republic by the 15th century republic refers to a state with an elected ruler as opposed to a hereditary monarch i don't want to go into all the details about how the Roman Republic ended and became the imperial state that it did later. And uh, although it's it's good to know that the empire existed under the republic, mm-hmm. uh, it didn't it didn't have to have emperors to have a, an empire. Uh, we'll talk about empires later. But the distinctions that are often made between democracy and republic uh, would be the following: in a republic. A constitution or charter of rights exists, which cannot be taken away by government or vote of the citizens. That, of course, brings to mind the Constitution and the Bill of Rights, which is not subject to being pulled away by uh, a vote of the people, right? Right. It would have to be legislators that that vote uh, in a constitutional convention. And the procedure of amending the Constitution can be very painful and long and protracted. Right. And it's for a reason, because uh, these this Bill of Rights of the, the Constitution uh, exists to be the basis of freedoms and rights that every citizen should enjoy or everyone living in this society should enjoy. And it, uh, thinking of democracy now in a negative light. Because uh, pure democracy is just voting on everything that comes along, right? And there's this popular quote, democracy is two wolves and a sheep deciding what's for dinner. Or sometimes it's what's for lunch or whatever it is. Anyway, it's it's sometimes attributed to Ben Franklin, but I don't think that that quote belongs to Ben Franklin. Um, It's got to come from somewhere else. And why do I say that? Paul, why, why do I think, it, why do I question whether it comes from Benjamin Franklin? Because you looked it up? <laughs> well, yeah, I looked it up. I looked it up and lots of people said, no, Ben Franklin, they, we don't have any historical uh, documentation to prove that Benjamin Franklin said that. But Benjamin Franklin is like Mark Twain or George Bernard Shaw or Dorothy Parker or H.L. Mencken. He's one of these people who... Uh, I think if you see something that's particularly well put and it's attributed to one of those people, uh, you had better go look it up before you try citing it formally. Right. So conservatives in particular like to uh, criticize democracy. Now, a direct democracy is law by popular vote. In ancient Athens, they used to have huge juries made up of hundreds of citizens. It wasn't you know, the whole populace or the whole electorate, but everybody had a turn. And the idea was the more people voting, the better, even on a, an individual jury case. We have some of that, especially in the West here, 
we have a lot of initiatives in which all kinds of things are put to popular vote. And in one memorable instance a long time ago, there was an initiative which said we need to restrict the size of classes in public schools and we need to lower taxes. <laughs> These both passed by big margins and Oh, guess which one happened? <laughs> right, <laughs> Taxes right. got cut and the classes stayed large because you couldn't do both. That's one of the problems with direct democracy is that often there's no overseeing of, well, what are the ramifications of what I'm voting for? What other things might it be conflicting with? This is nice to have this particular idea, but is it really the thing we ought to be putting most of our money into? Sometimes you need to step back. So that's a problem in democracy. You think of the typical town meeting where people just get up and everybody speaks and then everybody votes. There are not very many of those anymore. Usually there's an elected town council that makes, does the actual voting. But direct democracy does happen in places. And so the U.S. does not have that kind of direct democracy. We do not actually vote for president. We vote for electors who then go to the Electoral College and cast their votes. And they are now bound by law most of the time to cast their vote for whoever got the majority of vote of the people who voted for them. But you don't even see these people's names on the ballot. You think you're voting for the candidate. You're actually voting for the elector. Mm -hmm. So we have an indirect democracy. It's still a democracy. Conservatives often argue that the founders of the country were opposed to democracy and created a republic. And that's what we ought to call it. Now, they often cite Hamilton and Jefferson in particular. The thing is that they both had very negative things to say about democracies, but they had no democracies to talk about except, guess what, ancient Greece. And ancient Greece collapsed, okay? In the long run, it didn't work out. And Plato's and Socrates' criticisms of the democracy became very influential. The idea that people cannot be trusted as a mob to rule themselves because their passions are aroused and they elect people because they like their personalities instead of their policies or they get very angry and start doing unjust things just because they're upset and so on. And that's the model that they had in mind when they were saying uh, democracy uh, doesn't work. They, of course, had no way of foreseeing how the kind of democracy they were in the process of setting up would work, which was limited in a lot of ways, with a Senate being less democratic than the House and indirect election of the president and no uh, electoral rights for many citizens. All of this meant that the republic they were creating is what we now call a democracy. And this is one of those cases where you can't win the argument by going back and saying, well, etymologically, the term meant this originally. Even even that doesn't work because the ancient Greek democracy was not absolute either. As not every citizen voted on everything and didn't have the last word. So this platonic ideal, if you will, this is a negative ideal of democracy as being total self-rule is a figment of the imagination. It's a rhetorical device to try to restrict people's rights, essentially. And what they set up and called a republic is what is now known as democracy. And that's the way the term is normally used, not only by professionals, but by journalists and educators and just normal people out in the streets. They understand democracy as being the rights of people to vote a government in and out of office and influence policy, even indirectly. Now, as long as we're talking about founding fathers, could, could I sidetrack a little bit here and talk about the Iroquois Confederacy? 
Yes. Uh, you're familiar with this. Uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> this was... In 1988, the Senate passed a resolution that acknowledged the influence of the Iroquois Confederacy, the Confederacy of six uh, tribal nations of Native Americans. And the idea was that the Constitution and voting system that was set up initially in at the Constitutional Convention, it's it's acknowledged in this in this 1988 resolution that the Iroquois Confederacy had a large influence on that. Uh, this is up for debate. Uh, ben Franklin biographer found a, a letter that Ben Franklin wrote. He said it would be a very strange thing if six nations of ignorant savages should be capable of forming a scheme for such a union and yet that a like union should be impracticable for 10 or a dozen English colonies. So that kind of gets conflated into this idea that somehow Ben Franklin is holding up to their system of government as some ideal. Um, I think rather it just reflects on, you know, the inherent racism of the founding fathers who refer to them as ignorant savages. Um, but anyway, the, the, the Iroquois Confederacy is a phenomenon, but, uh, you know, it's not necessarily the, um, what it's made out to be in this 1988 resolution that had been passed by the Senate. Yeah, his reference to it was made as an argument in the midst of the debate about forming what became the American democratic system and the federal system. And so he's looking around to say, well, uh, people keep saying this is impractical. It's not going to work. Uh, what argument can I find to show that it will work? Uh, well, look at this other. This is something vaguely similar over here. The Indians have managed to do so we could certainly manage to do it. So it's not a model of him sitting down and saying, oh, I've been reading about what the Iroquois have been up to, and I think we ought to imitate them. That's what's implied. Yeah, this is an attempt to make the founding fathers look more sensitive and egalitarian than they were, <laughs> if you if you want to look at it another way. It's like, well, look how sophisticated those people were. They were looking around at available systems of government, and they looked at the Iroquois nation, and, and uh, they were so sensitive to the, the, uh, the practices of the Native Americans. Well, they weren't sensitive at all to any of that. Well, also, I think there is a tendency by modern people wanting to do this to say, well, we should give some credit to the Native Americans. Well, yes, that, that, is, the, that is the intended spirit of that uh, 1988 resolution right. that we, we can't lose sight of that. But it's based on a premise. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's just kind of a, an attempt to patch over all kinds of history, I think. So we have, for Republic, we have parties, right? The Republican Party, and we have a Democratic Party. The word uh, Democrat refers to a member of the Democratic Party, and it's uh, usually referred to by Republican politicians as the Democrat Party. Uh, it's not its name. Uh, we've talked about this before, but since the 1940s, they've used it. They know it's insulting. They know it gets under the skin of their opponents, but they insist on it. And some of them have done it so often that I've, I've heard some who, in the course of a speech, tried to restrain themselves and throw in the word Democratic, and then they slip right back to Democrat because mm. they're so used to it. 
it's a stupid thing. We've both agreed on this before. It's a stupid bit of invective because it's absolutely pointless to everybody outside the legislature or, or nerds that really follow politics in a very close way. General voters don't even notice when somebody says Democrat Party. And they might think somebody made a mistake if they did notice it. But I guess it makes them feel better to delegitimize the other party by not using its proper name. But it is a violation of the general rule of manners, which says you should use the title that a person prefers for that group. If a person prefers to be called Asian instead of Oriental or Vietnamese instead of Asian, then you ought to respect that. And it's insulting to just insist, oh, well, I'm used to calling people uh, Negras, so that's what I'm going to say. You know, that that just doesn't go in modern culture and calling someone a member of the Democrat Party shouldn't be allowed either. It's not nearly as insulting, but it's it's just stupid. We're talking about democracy being held up as the ideal form of government, or we'd like to call ourselves a democracy. So why is that a negative thing anyway, just at its core, just if you just take the meaning of it? Oh, it's a bunch of people who believe in democracy. Uh, okay. <laughs> I've seen all kinds of arguments for what the implied meaning with. I think they just take delight in not using the real name. Right, right. And if you were going to be consistent, you should call uh, it the Republic Party on the other side. Right. And I don't think any American uh, in this system minds the term republic or minds the term democracy uh, anyway. So these are just uh, these are just names that got attached to the different parties. And it doesn't mean that the Republican Party is idealizing democracy any less than the Democratic Party is or that the Democratic Party does not understand the merits of a republic that has a certain set of uh, rights that are granted to people and can't be voted away. Uh, kind of arbitrary assignments to the two parties, isn't it? Democrat. Democratic yeah. Party and Republican Party. Right, right. Yeah. And, you know, often noted that uh, people who want to restrict government and get them out of people's lives will do all kinds of things with when it comes to issues like drugs and abortion with extremely intrusive actions on the part of government. So there's a lot of inconsistency from uh, Republicans as well as Democrats. Well, next time I want to talk about some things that are decidedly not Democratic and I think talking about politics uh, in this way, we're talking about dictatorships and monarchies and you know, what, what is a oligarchy, these sorts of things. I think that's where the conversation gets really interesting. Uh, when we talk about things that are not idealized at all. Okay. Look forward to it. Thanks, Paul. So long. That's all for the podcast this week. As usual, you can send your comments and questions to commonerrorspodcast at gmail.com. If you want to support the podcast, buy the book. The Common Errors in English Usage book can be bought online at your favorite online seller at our website, wmjasco.com, with free shipping. Thanks for listening.